In this episode, we're answering some of your questions. We'll be covering alternative ways to measure the success or otherwise of an investment property, ways to improve cash flow, possible solutions for underquoting, and a listener dumbo to finish with. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready, and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. Our first question is from Paris. Hi, Veronica. You mentioned in a recent podcast that yield isn't the way to measure the value of an investment property. You touched on ROI and cash flow. Can you please expand on this? How should you measure the value of an investment property if looking to purchase? Thank you. All right. Chris, I'm sure you've got some thoughts on this. It's a good question, right? I think that the uh, a lot of people just think about the capital growth return. Um, you know, a property they bought at you know, 500000 it's gone up to 700000 You know, let's just sh- forget about the cost for a second, but that's been a 40% return, right? But that, is that really the way to think about, you know, your return on an investment property, you know? Or is it, a lot of people think, oh, it's, you know, it's a 6% yield, so I'm getting a 6% return, but... You know, then you've got costs involved of, you know, maintenance and you've got uh, maybe strata and then you've got insurance. And so is it really a 6% yield or is it, and then you've got insurance, um, you know, a lot of people have got debt. So, you know, there's a cost to, um, you know, get that rent as well. So I think how people think about their return on the investment property is a really good question because it's not that simple. And I think the way to probably approach this question, the ROI, I mean, return on investment, that's a, a commonly sort of peddled, you know, investment sort of, uh, acronym um but also cash flow that's another great part of this conversation because with properties you know rather than shares you know generally speaking when you are taking out debt there's a negative or a positive cash flow impact that you've got to sort of maintain whereas you buy a share you know yeah you get some dividend but you know you might have some you might have uh, used debt to buy those shares so yeah maybe there's an interest expense but you're not like maintaining an asset right so i think this is the you know you need to break it down so i think when you think about investing there's two types of investors. There's people who use cash. So people who use maybe savings they've got in the bank um, or they've sold some shares uh, or there's people who are using equity. So they're using equity in a property to borrow to then go and buy another property. And that matters because the person who's using cash, they have a opportunity cost on what they could do with that money, right? So they could have left that money in shares. Um, but the thing with property, let's say they bought a a uh, million dollar property, right? Um Technically, the minimum deposit you'd probably want for a million-dollar property would be 5% for stamp duty and a 10% deposit, right? So you'd need about $150,000. So with $150,000, you could comfortably, assuming you could get the borrowing, go and buy a million-dollar property with a $900,000 loan. So your $150,000 has actually bought a million-dollar property. But then you've got to think through, well, with that million dollar property, has this got a positive cash flow? Does it, is it cost? Is, am I getting money in my pocket each year, or is it costing me a negative cash flow? Is it, is it you know the rent not covering all the costs? And so, when you think about the return on investment, really what you're thinking here is what's the return on my 150? Yes, you could you're using your borrowing capacity. That's an asset as well. But 
technically you're investing $150,000 of your cash to buy a property, plus you're investing the negative cash flow on a yearly basis, which might be, say, let's just call it $10,000 a year, right? So if, for example, you bought a property of, you know, at a million dollars, and in 10 years' time, it was worth $1.5 million, well, you're one fifth, and let's say you sold that property, right? So you sold that property for, uh, I don't know, 1.5, unless some agents, after agents cost, it was 1.5. Let's just keep it simple, right? So your million dollars with a loan of 900,000 is now worth $1.5 million, right? So your 150, right, is now turned into 600 because when you sell it, you've got, you get 1.5, but you got to pay out your loan of 900, assuming you went interest only loans, right? So even though the property only went from a million to 1.5 million, your 150 has gone from 150 to 600, so four times. So the market went up 50%, but your cash went up 400%. So when someone said, oh, my property's gone up 50%, well, no, it hasn't in this situation. Your cash has gone from 150 to 600. You've made a 400% gain. Um, and, it, and you might pay capital gains tax and things like this if it's an investment, et cetera. But also there's probably been a negative cash flow. Let's say this that property in that scenario went from a million to 1.5 over 10 years. Let's just call it. Um, and there was a negative cash flow with $10,000 at the start, but every year that negative cash flow got smaller because rents went up and your costs, for example, stayed the same, roughly. Um, maybe you had like an 80 grand loss in negative cash flow. So your 150 went to 600 in gains, but then you lost 80 grand in negative cash flow. So really your 150 is gone from 150 up to say 520, which is still an amazing return as a compounding rate versus anything else, et cetera. So that's, I think, the way to think about, um, you know, return on uh, equity or return on investment with properties is what is your net return after selling costs? Um, and what would you get back if you sold it versus what you put in? And then minusing off your negative cash flow or your positive cash flow might add to that. The thing with the next one is though, is though if you, for example, are buying an investment without any cash, you're just using equity. Well, really, you're not putting any money down. You're just really investing a negative cash flow. So your negative cash flow usually goes up because you're not putting any cash down. So you've got a bigger debt. So your negative cash flow might go from $10,000 a year to say $15,000 a year as an example. Uh, but that $15,000 a year might be buying you a million dollar property. And so if that million dollar property in this scenario went from a million to 1.5, well, really after costs, it might be four or 500 grand, right? In, in, but you, you're getting four or 500 grand return on just negative 15 cash flow a year. That's why property can be so enticing if, if you buy quality assets that actually go up in value because your negative cash flow allows you to buy the growth of assets going up in value. And so it's a really good question because what you're doing is you're breaking out the, re- the actual return on investment plus thinking about how the cash flow impacts that. Um, and so hopefully that was a, a good explanation, Pari. It is it is a great question because we do talk about it a, a lot and you know, probably be good to put together some sort of tool for people to understand this because there are so many different ways to look at the return on investment because as Chris has said, a lot of it really stems from how you fund it. So if you are funding it purely out of cash flow, as, as a lot of investors do when they tap into the equity in their home and they borrow 105% of the value of, of an investment property and, and literally it's whatever they're out of pocket every month, that's what they're investing. That's, that's the cash they're actually investing in it, as Chris was just talking about. Um, so obviously the cash plus your negative cash flow and then you never know then until you sell it 
exactly what your return on investment was, right? So you've then got to, um, you know, you keep a, a, an annual account on that. You, you do your P&L for your property and, and work out your, you know, assets, liabilities and, and all the rest of it. Yeah, cash flows, ins and outs. And you could sort of keep track on, on what you're expecting it to be versus what you think the property would sell at then at any given time. And I do that actually with my investment properties. Um, every year I do a little bit of a little mini appraisal just to see where's the tracking, what's it probably worth now if I had to sell it. So so you can track that because you, you've got all those those figures, you, you know what you've spent for the year, you know, cumulatively what you spent. Uh, so you can work that out. The other thing that I think is really important that Chris is talking about is opportunity cost because, and this is the thing that people don't often count when it comes to property. And and I often refer to benchmarking when people say to me, oh, I've done really well at a property. They're often looking at what they bought it for or what they sold it for minus what they bought it for. And they just take that top line as to whether they've done well or not. Well, you know, have you looked at those, what that actually cost you? But also have you compared it to other alternatives that you did have back when you bought that property and really, really interrogated that? Well, it, you may not think that that's a worthwhile exercise, but if you're going to reinvest the money, you want to think about, well, okay, maybe I could have done better, you know. Um, the other thing too is the, you know, some people look at the ROI as pure capital growth. Other people, people combine the yield and capital growth. I think Stuart Weems has actually done quite a bit of work on this. And if you just look at pure capital growth of property and you compare it against investing in the share market, I think if I've got it right, I may have got it wrong. Um, it says it doesn't really stack up that much. You do have to combine the two uh, in terms of working out the return on investment. But the other thing that we haven't mentioned, and we have mentioned in previous podcasts at different times, is that with property, you get to invest your future tax liability and you get the benefit of the return on that investment until you sell the property and have to pay the tax. And so, and that is not often discussed. So, for example, I've got investment property, Chris's example, bought it for a million dollars. Let's just keep the number simple, sold it for 1.5. I've got to pay capital gains tax on the 500,000, which is the profit. Um, I've got to, you know, obviously I'll get a, a concession. So of that, I've got to pay tax on half of that. Um, so I've got to pay, mates, let's just say it's $120,000 in tax, right? Until you sell that property and you have to pay that debt, that $120,000 is still invested and you're still getting compounded growth on that tax liability. And I think that's something too that often isn't accounted for uh, when people look at the ROI on their property investments. So there's just some, I guess, we've just thrown some other things to look at uh, when you're working out your ROI. And um, and I'm hoping that clarifies things for you. <laughs> Yeah, and I think it's a really important thing because a lot of people with a negative cash flow, sometimes people say, I just want to pay my home off, you know, especially under higher interest rates. People say it's a guaranteed return after tax of, you know, five or 6%, which is very true. But what you're not really comparing apples and apples. So when you say someone's, for example, a negative cash flow of $15,000 a year, well, yeah, that's right. They could be using that negative cash flow of $15,000 a year to pay off their home loan and get it, save, you know, 6% interest rates, which might be $1,000 a year of interest. But that for that $15,000 a year, they're getting the growth on a million-dollar investment property, right? And so a lot of people don't really, um, you know, they think, oh, I should just be paying off my mortgage. It's very high. They're, they're looking at that actual growth rate, not the leg leverage growth rate. Um, and opportunity cost is huge, right? And I think um, a lot of people um, don't think about that. You know, they don't think about, well, if I bought this property, 
comparing, you know, that property versus another property in the suburb or what they could have done if they upgraded their home or what if they just didn't buy that, used $150,000 and went into shares. So that example where someone went, you know, for 150 to 600,000, well, if they just left it in the stock market for 10 years and, um, and you know, dollar, uh, dollar cost averaged in and potentially then just reinvested their dividends, et cetera, maybe it was 300 anyway. So really the growth isn't, you know, 150 to 600. It's only really how property outperformed the share market, you know, an index fund over 10 years. They don't take factor in, um, you know, repairs or maintenance or things they had to do like sunk costs. They, they, uh, they forget about things when they look at their return and things like that. So yeah, I think you've got to really, like Veronica said, I think you've got to track it on a spreadsheet, on a yearly basis, really look at all your costs, what it really, uh, what your negative cash flow was after the year, after tax, um, and then look at what the valuation is on the property today and, and be realistic with it, right? And don't just, um, you know, pick the best one in the suburb to think it is and, and, and constantly watch that and look at what that negative cash flow plus your current investment is and, and then try to figure out your return. Um, but yeah, it's not as simple as just sort of, doing that you know i bought it for this and this is what it's worth and it's gone up 40 percent. i made 40 percent. it's definitely never that way it's it's potentially even worse or better than that the other thing that i mean i'm writing an article at the moment for australian property investor magazine about the trouble with hotspotting it'll be published by the time we release this so you can go and read it if you want to and i'm looking at that um as being um you know, 71% of investors, right, ABS data was out recently saying that 71% of investors have one investment property in this country, right? That means you have going to lump all of your eggs in one basket and if you're going to choose one property to invest in, you want it to be the best possible asset you can get because this is your one shot at leveraged investing. And I don't think enough people take that – that opportunity cost bit seriously enough. You know what I mean? They, they, a lot of people, when they start out investing, think, oh, this is going to be the beginning of my empire that I'm going to build. But, but 71% of Australians stop at one, which says that the odds are you're not going to go beyond one. And if you're not going to go beyond one, you want it to be a bloody good one, right? And, and I think that that's why measuring your ROI in these bigger picture sort of sense is so important. Because if you do just focus on yield, as Chris said at the beginning of this answer, you could just look at your percentage yield. That would be a very poor measurement of an investment property because you're missing all the benefit of compounding because you're not making – rental income is not, does not compound. And that's the benefit. That's the big beauty of property. Yeah, and I think you're right. Not only just you know, buying one investment property, most people only buying one home, right? Um, and that is the asset that grows tax-free. And I think people don't think about that in enough detail to, to make sure they're not missing a big trick there. I think that's where we always go with clients first is, you know, really unpack that first. Is it is it a great asset? Are they going to stay there long-term? You know, why are you going down investment property? You know, if you're thinking about upgrading, you know it's not a great asset. Um, solve that first and then look at the investment property because it's, it's much harder to to unwind it. So yeah, great question. And um, next question's from Peter. Yes. And this is following on on the theme here. Um, I'd be interested to hear more episodes on risk versus return of high capital growth with low yield versus higher yield and lower growth. We have done the former and now transitioning to later as we want more cash flow. It seems to me that in both stocks and properties, the higher yield part of the market is proving to be a bit more resilient as we move into the down part of the cycle and prices come down as rates go up and capital is scarcer. I wonder whether this will be the case over the next decade. 
So, Peter, it's it's a really interesting question, right? So, um, anyone who's been listening to our 260-odd episodes probably realize that we are absolutely fans of, you know, a smaller number of quality properties that do focus on growth. We think property is a capital growth play rather than a yield play. Um, I mean, in terms of your adjusted returns, I mean, is the market, um, you know, holding up better in the lower end? I would say maybe now. Is it going to hold up better as if rates do stay higher for longer? I would say that there's more challenges in that part of the market from a supply point of view, from a demand point of view. Um, and absolutely. But if you also look at what rose the fastest in 21 and 2020 was the upper end of the market, right? And is the growth. So I would say, yeah, absolutely. They're going to come off harder, but they also rose faster in the boom. Um, I'd also say that, you know, they're probably finding their base faster as well because supply is getting really restricted. Um, and if you look at what's coming back in the market now in terms of prices, it is more the affluent or the higher end of the market that's bouncing back faster than the middle and bottom end of the market. So I don't think you're getting, you didn't get all the growth when you potentially should have got the growth in, in the higher yield. Um, they didn't rise as fast as the top end. Um, yeah, in that 2022 freak out moment when borrowing capacities and rates went up a lot, the top end got hit harder, but it's also finding support faster and it's potentially bouncing back faster. And so that would be my observation is that, yeah, there is a timing issue when you are playing because, but when you're buying investment properties or homes, you're really taking a long-term view. You try to get a home that you can grow into. So what happens over a year or two in the markets? Yeah, it's um, concerning, but what you do is protect yourself by buying the best quality asset, um, you know, the best street, the aspect that, you know, none of the, the B, Cs and Ds, if, unless you absolutely have to in those markets, right? And you try to not sell it at markets when, you know, there's a freak out event, right? So you try to get through the 2018, 19, you get through the 2022, 2023, you don't sell your invest, your great investment property now, um, or you don't sell your house now. And so that would be my argument, Peter, is that I, we just don't, I'm not a fan of this high yield sort of, um, I think it's a, it's an affordability play. It's not a play you want to play in over 30 years. It's like a hot spotting thing. And um, yeah, that would be my, my, my approach. It's interesting that um, Peter talks about is transitioning from higher capital growth type property into high yield property. And so he didn't sort of talk about the stage of life that they're at, but I'm sensing potentially they're at the, oh, maybe heading towards retirement. Now that is a time where you would change your focus from higher capital growth and, you know, towards yield. And personally, I don't, Residential property, there's better. If you want a yield asset, then there's better um, assets than residential property. So, as part of your overall investment strategy, might be the time when you start selling down on those great great assets that you've held for twenty years, thirty years, perhaps. You know, they've made all that money, and then you you maybe divert that into other investments potentially, right? But obviously, there's costs involved in selling down, and you've got to pay tax and that sort of thing. So, obviously, it'd be part of a, a bigger financial plan, but I really don't like property for yield. I just don't, and and, be, and because I think there are better alternatives. That's why. And uh, so I think that he, it's interesting that he's saying that in both stocks and properties, he's thinking that yield, the high yield part of the market is proving to be more resilient. Now I can't speak to stocks, but I, I'd like to know what evidence he's talking about. Um, and certainly in the property side, I'm not really sure what evidence he's talking about there either, because also. Yield is um, it's been distorted a bit over recent years. I mean, certainly when you got massive high increases in prices in 2021, then well, yield just plummets because the the rent increases never keep up with you know 
rapid price growth at that rate. And then, of course, since then, we've had falling prices, but we've had increasing rents. So then the yields sort of flipped around a bit. And so, you know, that would make it look like high yield is doing better, but there's other forces at play. So when we look at the, the property market as a whole and what's sort of happening there, um, yeah, I'm not I'm not 100% certain what he's talking about there. But I do think that the reality is that if you are looking at short-term plays in the property market, once again, it's a bit like trying to chase yield. I just think there's other things you can invest in. Less risky. I mean, property's lumpy. And we we said earlier, only 71% of investors only stop at one property. So if you're sort of playing in this in this game and you're thinking you're going to be accumulating lots and lots of properties, then you're probably not because most people don't. And you know, obviously, if you've got lots and lots of income, maybe you can, but then you go, well, why wouldn't you buy better assets? You know what I mean? So I really just, I think that this this chasing high yield in residential property, it's it's pitched at people who can't afford better assets. And I think that that's, that's a big danger personally. So. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is. And I think my frustration is, yeah, absolutely. Some people have to go this route and uh, there's an explosion of buyers agencies in this space, you know, tech driven buyers agencies that, um, you know, have the holy grail, great growth and great rents. And they've been doing it for two minutes and, you know, they uh, have the magic sauce, right? The secret sauce that, um, and there's a number of them and they're coming out and um, they, they, they're they very easy decision-making for investors, right? Because you go, you've told me all these things that, uh, you know, we should basically uh, BS to be honest, right? They're um, they're forecasting. We will prove it on this podcast how many times that's uh, fraught with danger. Um, and yet maybe they get it right with a bit of timing in the market and the, you know, interest rates, but they're not like long-term proven strategies, right? And um they're also potentially make some money, but you've got to get out of these markets. Then there's an opportunity cost of selling and buying, et cetera, like that. So I would say, Peter, like if you, for example, are getting to that um, older stage, what's worked for you, right? You said you've got some high growth assets, right? Potentially, if you sell, you're going to have to pay capital gains tax. If they're high growth assets in the past, they're most likely going to stay high growth assets. You know, good assets are good assets. That's fundamental, stay the same. Scarcity, location appeal to you know higher income families um people with cash etc so i would say peter if you're worried about getting your debt exposures getting a bit too much then absolutely you may decide to sell down some of your high growth assets but i would keep some of them um and you know i'd be holding them into retirement and i would potentially be taking whatever your profits is and paying down your home loan and looking at other asset classes you know have a financial planner and be looking at your shares and your super and your commercial property and you know, and all those sort of things for your yield to supplement your income in retirement, not be looking at residential property. Residential property is a hard asset to make much money on a yield basis. Um, unless you try to manufacture yields through things like, like you mentioned here, you know, um, Airbnbs, renting room by room, you know, boarding houses and granny flats. And, you know, all those things generally don't appeal to high growth assets as well, because does high growth assets, do people really want those co-living boarding houses you know that's what um etc or granny flats just etc so i think you're potentially trying to make you know shift as your lifestyle from great assets into poor assets to supplement your income when you could have done that other ways and still held on to great assets that you could have sold down later in retirement and so that would be my concern here peter and if you own a, a position where you have owned good assets for a long period of time your debt position would be quite low and in which case yes you can you can deal with a lower yield because at the end of the day you have much less debt and um, and so you just sort of, you keep, you know, 
enjoying that increased capital growth. And once you've got equity, even if you're retired and you've got income coming from from your investments, you know, you do have opportunities to use that equity to continue to invest in other things potentially. So equity gives you options. Um, Chris was alluding to a few other things that you'd said in your question, which I didn't read out. I thought I'd wait because I put it out to the rest of your listeners because uh, what Peter said, he'd be interested to hear more episodes on how you can deliver more cash flow from your asset and the inherent risks involved. And he says, perhaps a mini series. I'm going to put it out to the audience to say, well, it, are you interested in any of these topics? And if so, let us know because we can always do that. Uh, he's saying perhaps a mini series, rent by the day, that's Airbnb or short term renting, rent by the room, co living board, boarding houses, multiple rents, granny flats, uh, renting to higher needs people such as NDIS. Uh, so he thought that this would be quite interesting. So if you agree, then let us know. You can email us via the elephant in the room or send us an e- at the website or you can send us an email at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au and, um, and we will bring something to you along these lines. I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions and you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au and there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower north shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. All right. So our third question is from Adrian. Hi, Veronica and Chris. Thanks so much for your podcast. Excellent content and presentation. And we're going to say thank you. Uh, Over the journey and listening to your last podcast, this could be a while because we do store up these questions, by the way, um, particularly re-agents underquoting. Now, he says he's been an agent for nine years, a rural agent, and this is a topic that is close to his heart. Many years ago, way before I was an agent, I went to a buyer's advocate seminar in Melbourne. I had a very simple solution that would take away all the integrity issues that this brings along with it. I've never forgotten it. It is simply make it legislation that Rendell's reserve price needs to be in the agent's 10% quoted range and vice versa. If a property makes more at auction than the quoted range, then so be it. That is market forces at work. In a private sale situation, if the uh, purchaser makes an offer at the top end of the range, they know they have passed or matched the reserve, so it is on the vendor if they choose not to accept the offer. And us agents can't be accused of underquoting. It takes it out of the equation. Easy. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that, Chris? Let's get your thoughts first. Uh, and more informed on this, this, the games, I guess, and, and I'll collect mine in the meantime. All right. So in New, sorry, in South Australia, it is actually legislated that the reserve cannot be more than ten percent above the guide, and I think that's good. And I've been saying this for a long time, in fact, because which is very similar to what he's talking about here, because it pins the vendor to the agent's price guide. And the problem is at the moment, cynical agents can go to a vendor and can explain that, look, I need to underquote in order to, to um, you know, get the interest that we want for this property. And in order to underquote, I have to put a lesser price than I've told you verbally on the agency agreement. These are the comparables that I'm going to use to justify that price. 
And, you know, and if you get that it's all part of a tactic, to, like these are the tactics to get you the max amount of competition and, the, and if the vendor agrees, they're complicit in that. And this does happen, not all the time, right? Not all the time, but often enough. And so if the vendor is saying, well, actually, no, I don't agree to that because I know that I can't, quote, I can't set my reserve more than 10% above that. So, so therefore, that does tie those things together very, very tightly. And I think that that is, um, that is quite an important uh, thing. Now, everybody is going to find a way around that. Um, but there's less ways around that than what is currently legislated in most jurisdictions. Now, I rant about this sort of thing quite a lot on my videos, and I had someone reach out recently to say they're going to put together some name and shame sort of index effectively for underquoting. And I thought, great, really interesting, but this is a person who doesn't really understand how the property market works. And so it was like, he says, well, you know, we can, we can put a score, we can basically have a leaderboard for agents. And so anybody's buying a property will know whether or not that's a habitual underquota. I'm like, that's great. Except the problem is what is underquoting? What is quoted? Like at what point during a campaign or which price that has been quoted during a campaign do you pick to compare with the final sales price? If you don't understand how that all works, then you're coming at this from, the, you know, well, basically we blinkers on. You don't really know everything that can happen. And so I've had various conversations with people about this over the years because I'd love this to be a transparent way for us all to understand. I've even tracked in, in 2021, I tracked the agents in our area uh, in Sydney. And I and yes, we know the habitual underquoters, but sometimes they actually manage to get it right. Sometimes, I mean, the worst cases back then was, you know, 40 and 50% underquoting, right? One was even 68% underquoting. But that also was a property that went sailing well and truly over reserve. So what is underquoting? And, and once again, where's the reserve? So there's so many elements to this, but I do think that this is a very simple mechanism, this, this um, suggestion that Adrian's made. I think it is a very successful uh, mechanism. I'm surprised that more jurisdictions don't adopt it because I do think that at all the, all the, I guess, the murky waters of underquoting, this is probably the most effective one. Yeah, I mean, that's a funny tool to build. I'm not sure he's going to pay for that tool, right? The underquoting well, tool. Well, that's what I asked him too. Who's, where's he going to make? Oh, buyers will pay, really? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, good luck with that, trying to make it money. I mean, the agents aren't going to like it, right? I mean, trying to get that data and, yeah, over across the whole country, it's, um, yeah, it sounds a bit optimistic. I think that, you know, really the underquoting sort of the price guide is really something you learn when you're first in the market, right? That, that's the frustrating. It's that first two to three months where you, you don't know what you're doing, you go to an open home, they say it's a million dollars, you get there and it goes to 1.3, 1.4, and you you blame the agent. But the reality is just right, watching that market, you know, looking at past sales, you know, you probably would realize if it sold for a million dollars, it'd be an absolute bargain. Nothing has sold anywhere near that in, in the last six months. And it's unrealistic. And you look at the comparables on the sheet and you look at that it's a busy road and it's south facing and that it's a much smaller block. And well, they're, they're not even real comparables anyway. Um, and so I think it is a little bit naive to think that the agent's the issue here when the reality is the market is what it is. I think you need to be doing your own due diligence and setting your own number on what it's worth and figuring out, is it a quality asset in the first place? Is it a great asset? Is Does it suit my life? 
right now let's go figure out what it's worth and i know that's not as easy to what the agent's price guide is only anchoring you anyway so really you shouldn't really want to know that number anyway technically to to look at this unbiased you shouldn't really want to know that number you should be going and doing your own due diligence looking at the land size looking at all the past sales going to other auctions looking what else is selling um, knowing how good the assets and coming up with your own number not what the agent is and so that would be my advice is, is that you focus potentially i know this is a question because it's an agent in the area but i wouldn't be focusing on that i'd be focusing on figuring out what is a great asset within the suburb that i'm looking to buy and try to find up as much details of past sales you know in new south wales you can look at the land registry and you know looking back at past listings and trying to compare you know this property on the market right now to what is sold trying to get as many comparables as you can one sale is not enough right and if it is that sale, you know, try to go to the auctions and, um, you know, and there's, there's so many more things than focusing on this. I think the reality is it's just the system. Um, I mean, on the weekend, I was looking at, I was looking on a Saturday night, you know, at all the auction results. There's one up on the beaches, you know, the price guy was 1.2, it's off 1.8. Um, you know, it was, a, yeah, it was a rundown semi, but it suit, suited families, right? Um, and it needed a bit of work. So they've completely underquoted it and, 40 50 percent above what the price guide was the night before the auction right so um yeah I, I it is a challenge but i would say that you know rather than trying to change the system in your lifetime and when you're purchasing i would just focus on becoming amazing at doing your research within the suburb that you're looking to buy and tracking as many sales as you can and and forming your own price on it anyway not even asking the agent to be honest i think i would find it rather know my number myself based on the past sales than speaking to an agent and and trying to play the game with a vendor. Because once you've got that number, then you can potentially can go into negotiation because you could say, well, I know that this would be an amazing buy at 1.25 billion. I know that. And then they said they're offering a, a guide of 1 to 1.1. Well, you're in a powered position. You've already made your own decision what you think it's worth based on everything you know in the suburbs. So that would be my advice is, is, yeah, focus on what you know, not what the agent's saying. It's a good point. I mean, people are trying to buck the system, Right. The way the property is sold in this country is bigger, bigger and uglier than we are. You know, we cannot control it. We can only control certain elements, how we behave in that system. And so what you're saying there, Chris, is absolutely right. Taking personal responsibility for the pricing you decide you're prepared to pay for any particular property, right? This is all about doing the work. You know, it's what we teach in Home Buyer Academy is this process of understanding, A, what it should be worth and be what you're prepared to pay for it. And so people who go in, they go, but the agent said, so therefore I'm going to add 10%, or the agent said, so therefore I'm going to add 20%, or I'm going to add 100 grand or whatever. They're using the wrong thing, right? Because for lots of reasons, one is you're allowing the, the agent to anchor you, as Chris said, but also different agents use different approaches to this. And so if you have this blanket response to all agents, you're going to miss out a lot of the time and you're going to overpay some of the time. And so back when I was actually calculating, you know, the differential between agent guide and sale price, there's a huge variety even within an individual agent. So to even come up with this leaderboard and this metric to say this agent on average is 17% under quotes, that, that leads to a dangerous assumption that, okay, well, if they're selling it, I'm just going to add 17% to their guide. And this is silly behavior because if I've seen people justify a ridiculous price they've just paid because they've used that sort of logic and they don't understand the, the mechanics of the market. They're trying to 
outsmart a market instead of just understanding how it works and taking responsibility for what how they approach it. And so that's, I guess, the best advice we can ever give you um, on this podcast. All right, so we're up to a Dumbo that's been sent in by Daniel. Thanks, Thanks for sending Daniel. us a Dumbo. We do love to hear other people's Dumbos. Uh, so love the show. Wanted to pass on a property Dumbo I recently learned about. A few years ago, an elected councillor, local government, pushed hard to have a section of a suburb zoned with a heritage overlay. This area is currently going through some gentrification. Um, we're not going to mention the area. The councillor's principal place of residence was a large corner block in this newly zoned area. After his term was up, he retired, sold his house and moved to another suburb. But the kicker is he missed out on well over $800,000 because his house lost its development potential. Hindsight is a funny thing. <laughs> so so Daniel's put that forward as a dumbo. But I'm not really sure it is a Dumbo unless the councillor didn't realise and then subsequently needed the money. If he didn't need the money and he's altruistic, it wouldn't be a Dumbo. But I do get what Daniel's saying yes. is that uh, <laughs> he was part of the heritage overlays, which, um, yeah, potentially, you know, in this, you know, if you can turn land from potentially being able to develop on it to heritage, well, absolutely, you're diminishing the value of that land, right? Because but I would argue that longer term, that the land, if you know, per square meter, the heritage overlaid land's probably better land, um, you know, to hold than a, you know, a, a pile of land that may or may not get developed, you know, in the future. Like maybe it's on a busier road, or you know, it's just a, a, a one of the houses, the streets that aren't likely to get developed. Um, but yeah, nothing can really beat the kicker when you can sell land to a developer, right? But that's only finite. It's maybe only around the train station. I'd wonder if this house is one of the houses that actually would get sold to a developer um sounds like it is in it says a large corner block in a newly zoned area so maybe you're right so maybe this house was perfect but then his heritage overlaid it um which yeah so that is quite funny daniel if that's the case where you know he basically pushed for the heritage overlay and then uh could have sold it for two million and only end up selling it for you know 1.2 1. 1. or something in the end yeah shot himself in the foot there <laughs> The one, when we first started this podcast back in 2018, such a long time ago, can you believe it's been five years? And remember we interviewed Luke Metcalf from Microverbs and Luke um, is, is a very well-regarded property researcher, a, a massive data geek, um, and I'll say that with the most respect, uses AI in a lot of his research and he told us then, he said, you know, the number one um, factor or the number one uh, ingredient in capital growth is zoning change. And it's a one-off. It's a one-off. And after that, it's funny because I ran for great, got to look for zoning changes. And it suddenly dawned on me. It was like, oh, <laughs> this that's being speculative for starters. And it's a one-off. And there's an element of luck because there's been entire suburbs that used to be orchard, orchard, you know, uh, market gardens, things like that have been sold to developers and people became millionaires, you know, after struggling with chook farms for years and years and years. And there's, you know, great stories about that. But at the end of the day, it required that rezoning. So this is an interesting one. I think that if the councillor enjoyed their years, his years there, um, enjoyed the heritage overlay, enjoyed living in that area with all of those, you know, that, that aesthetic, I guess, if you like, and didn't need the money, not a Dumbo. But if he didn't realise the implications, <laughs> then 
Adumbo. Thank you so much for sending that in. And thank you all for sending your questions in. Really good questions, really interesting, um, you know, can pull out some interesting conversations from that. Please keep them coming. We've got a speak pipe. We didn't have any uh, recorded ones on this because there's a little button on the website. If you go to theelephantintheroom.com.au, there's a little button on the side. You can press that and record a question. We love them. They sound so good too in the audio. Or you can send us via the website or you can also email us at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Thank you so much. Thank you so much and love the Dumbo, Daniel. Send more Dumbos through, please. <laughs> if you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.